This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. This is Good Things on The Bigger Picture, the show where we speak to good people doing good things. Titles and roles of activists may differ, but a good activist can be spotted by their passion and dedication to their work. One such person is Sivanandi Tanendaran. She is the Executive Director of the Asian Pacific Resource and Research Centre for Women, or ARO, which is a regional non-profit which champions sexual and reproductive rights. Siva is also a feminist, a writer and an activist and has championed women's sexual and reproductive health and rights and has expanded the work of ARO to examine more, with more scrutiny, the interlinkages of sexual and reproductive health and rights with critical development issues such as poverty, food security, climate change and migration. So today on the show, I'm joined by Siva to share some highlights from her long and illustrious career in activism. Welcome, Siva. How are you today? Hi, I'm feeling good. Thank you, Juliet, for inviting me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. So, you know, Siva, no stranger, of course, to BFM. We constantly bug you uh, and bother you, you know, to <laughs> to comment on so many things. But uh, I, and then we realised, you know, like, how have we not featured uh, Siva on Good Things? You know, she is, she embodies everything that we, you know, talk about on this show. So thank you so much uh, for joining me for this. And and Siva, you know, in your official bio, um, I was reading, and I didn't know this, you know, it said that you explored many different career choices, right, in your life, uh, which included teaching, writing, uh, commercial publishing, you even worked at the UN. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, those um, those different roads that eventually led you to where you are now? Yeah, thanks, Juliet. I must say that, you know, it was not a straight and narrow path that uh, brought me to the field of uh, SRHR and working at Arrow. Um, you know, I guess uh, it's because I started off studying literature because I loved it. And, you know, and literature is, you know, takes you into a sort of a dimension, right? I mean, either you're teaching or you're writing or you're, you know, um, working in advertising, like, you know, uh, different um, uh, people who have studied literature have done, right? So I think, um, so because of that, you know, the first path was teaching. And so I joined a university uh, and writing was also a first love, you know, and I've been writing from the time I remember. So, you know, journalism and journalists also have a soft spot in my heart because, you know, uh, uh, I remember writing way back as a teenager for the star and the star used to have this uh, children slash teenagers column right and when I was 12 or 13 they published uh, something small that I had written and there was this thrill in seeing you know your name in the byline you know mm -hmm. and I still get that same thrill you know when I see my name on articles reports and books you know mm -hmm. um, so I think that um, uh, understanding um, you know what your own individual strengths are Right. So I knew from a, a very early age uh, that my strengths were in part of this in, in communications uh, and in training and, and the, that kind of line. You know, so uh, I think that's partly what also brought me here. Um, the second, of course, was, you know, uh, I mean, I studied feminist theory, you know, uh, in university, but, you know, my whole environment, you know, was all about having equality and ensuring girls and women having the same type of opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there was always this underlying thread connecting all of the different work experiences. If I was teaching, I made sure I brought some feminist texts into the syllabus. And this was no mean feat because uh, I wasn't teaching in an 
you know, in on normal university, I was teaching, you know, STEM students, uh, English literature, you know. So if I was writing book reviews, I covered feminist books in the reviews or utilize a feminist lens when reviewing them. Mm. Uh, and so in the project that I worked in, UNDP also taught me how to like develop partnerships and work within partnerships of NGOs, right? So I guess all of those were, you know, skills I picked up in every different job that I had, you know, which uh, took me to good stead when I started working with Arrow. Mm-hmm. And so I guess all those things, like you said, pushed you towards where you are now. But do you recall, I don't know, was there a particular moment which sort of turned you more towards activism and particularly women's rights, women's sexual and reproductive uh, health rights? Yeah, I think, uh, firstly, uh, you know, um, I feel activism is like a very broad term, you know, although I feel like today it's become some sort of job description. Uh, Yeah, it Uh, has, you know, yeah. (laughs) So I think uh, a person's moment of activism starts, you know, when you feel the injustice, right? And then you resolve to do something about it. And how you resolve to do something about it could be in the forms of communicating in social media. You could study it or research it, or you could move smaller groups or, um, you know, create like, you know, education and outreach, you know, all of these are forms of activism, I feel, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, you know, for me, that moment of uh, activism must have started, and I always recollect this story, or this point of moment in my life, right? Um, And I was about five or six years old, you know, and uh, my, um, you know, and my father's sisters had come to talk to him because my father only had a daughter and they were talking to him about to have a son, right? Because as in an Asian family and especially like in an Indian family, having a son is a very important um, um you know, uh, within a a marriage or a family because sons would, you know, perform the last rites, you know, uh, sons kind of carry on, I guess, uh, family things, right? So, uh, and my dad, on the other hand, actually said to the fact, like, why are you asking me to have a son, you know, because uh, he said that, and the story he brought was how, you know, Mahatma Gandhi had five sons and, you know, nobody even knows who they are, but Jawaharlal Nehru had one daughter and that was Indra Gandhi and the whole world knows her name, right? I I had overheard this conversation and I was like struck at that point a moment when I was merely four, five or six years old that my father was telling me that girls have a right and can be anything and can be equal to sometimes five boys, right? So I think that's when, you know, the spark ignited in me about how the world views you so differently and how, you know, sometimes you're in a cocoon about your own worth because your parents are always with you, right? So um, I think so that sparked about how the world is a different place for men and women. Okay. And look where it led you now, my goodness. Um, (laughs) So my next question actually was, you know, uh, who do you count as mentors? Would, Would I be right in saying one of them was your dad as well? Definitely. I think firstly, of course, you know, there are too many to count and name. But, you know, I feel like definitely, as you said, my father, who really believed in me. I mean, that's one part of it. The other was I remember, um, you know, I was working in a regional project of the UNDP, which kind of the job then moved from KL to Bangkok. Right. Mm -hmm. That came at the time that I was going to give birth to my son. So the project moved, let's say, 31st December uh, of uh, 2004 and in 20th of January, my son was born. Right. So um, and what had happened was that then I thought that this was, oh, this is the universe sending me a message. 
about how uh, you know I can then you know uh, become take time with my family and build my family and kind of give up my job to do that. And I think that um, many women kind of get faced with this type of uh, situation in life, right? Um, and then so I was there, you know, six months into looking after my son, and uh, then my you know dad turns around to me and says, like, I think you're a very you know talented person, you know, you're really intelligent and you have something to contribute to the world. And he said, don't worry, I will take care of your child. You go and find something to do because you're not like other women. And so that was like something that was, you know, it just like, you know, blew my mind and said, oh, my God, my father thinks I'm capable of achieving something. Right. And he will help me in that because he knew that I didn't want to compromise on my family life. Right. Yeah. And so I think that those were the two, you know, seminal things in my life that he he helped me view my role in society in a completely different way. And then, of course, I've talked, you know, in the past about like, you know, my mom, who was a teacher, and then she would always talk about the agitation for equal pay that the National Union of Teachers carried out in the 70s, yeah. you know, um, and uh, she participating in that. So I think that that was also kind of seminal in this, you know, the way that I thought like, yeah, people aren't going to give you your rights you know, just hand it to you on a plate, you know, you would have to agitate for it, you would have to ask for it, you would have to demand for it, you know, for it to happen. And of course, parents really can shape your attitude uh, towards life or your perspective towards life and, you know, is uh, completely indebted to them. But of course, you know, I mean, where are we without our teachers, right? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I had so many, you know, great teachers and especially like my university lecturers and feminist university lecturers who taught me to analyze text and culture through a feminist lens and really, you know, made me look um, at the world in a very different way, right? And always to question the assumption you know, of the norm, that the norm that is presented to us is a patriarchal norm, you know, so uh, not to always take it for granted and, you know, just lap it up, whatever is given to us. Um, and I think later on, I think, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, I remember and I must acknowledge, you know, that there was this great uh, Indian researcher, Sundri Ravindran, who, when I was first writing the regional SRHR report for Arrow in 2007, 2008, taught me so much around data and data analysis. If she didn't take me into a wing, I mean, I don't think I would have written all of those reports that I did, you know. Um, and um, that was great, you know, because it's, again, part of that feminist mentorship and solidarity, right? I mean, like teaching somebody. Uh, at that time, I don't think uh, she thought, okay, how how far would this girl go with this, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I think, but now I think when she looks at me, when we have these conversations, and I always remember that if you didn't teach me all of this, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. So, yeah. Okay. What a lovely, lovely list of mentors contributing to who you became today. And then you, of course, you know, mentoring so many other people uh, through the work that you do. So it continues, isn't it? That's really, really wonderful. Um, let's just go for a, a quick break. So when we come back, let's talk about, you know, how you identify as a feminist and you know, what that actually means and how that actually has been for you. I'm speaking today to Sivanandi Tanendaran. She is the Executive Director of the Asian Pacific Resource and Research Centre for Women, or ARO. She's also a feminist, a writer and an activist. It's another episode of Good Things. Siva is, of course, our featured person for today. We'll have more after this quick break. Keep it right here on Good Things on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. 
Welcome back. This is Good Things on the Bigger Picture, the show where we speak to good people doing good things. The good person with me today is Sivanandi Tanantaran. She is the Executive Director of the Asian Pacific Resource and Research Centre for Women, or ARO. Uh, ARO is, of course, a regional non-profit which champions sexual and reproductive health rights. Uh, Siva is also a feminist. She's a writer. She's so many different things. I, do, I feel bad calling you an activist now, like it's a job title, but, you know, <laughs> I feel chastised. Um, but yeah, but, you know, you do so many things, uh, so many good things. And one of the things you know, through all our conversations, Siva, you know, both on air and off air, you never have ever shied away from stating that you are a feminist, right? That is something that you embody. What does feminism actually mean to you? How do you how do you express your feminism? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, one of the things I must say, you know, it's true that there was a time, you know, way back when saying you're a feminist would make people take a step back, right? Yes. I mean, you know, people like, you know, narrow their eyes and say, well, what does she really mean by that or something? Right. Mm. But now it's cool to say you're a feminist. So this is a huge step, I must I feel. And, you know, we should like kind of uh, take that as a success. <laughs> and then what does feminism mean to me now? This is like it's a huge question, Juliet. I mean, I think I can write a whole uh, rip- report on this actually but you know I mean in a nutshell I think like feminism isn't like that ISO 9001 standard right I mean like you either are a feminist or not a feminist Uh, and I remember that you know when I was starting out I mean like you know there was a lot of definitions from older feminists on what it was to be a feminist right right. and it's uh, they kind of held us to you know Uh, and um, for me I always you know decided for myself at least you know, it's just not about being a feminist, but it's about continually becoming a feminist, right? Because many years ago, you know, being a feminist meant about, you know, understanding, you know, uh, women's rights, gender power imbalances. But today, you know, it calls, uh, feminism calls us to look at intersectionality, that is to understand how there can be multiple layers of oppression and vulnerability, and for us to take that into account as well, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's just not a sex difference in, a, in, a, in it's not clearly black and white anymore. So there's a commitment to becoming a feminist. And, you know, that's what I try to like kind of uh, practice, you know, so I wouldn't say that um, while I claim to be a feminist, uh, you know, whether I am of that I so 9001 standard (laughs) feminist you know and I think that uh, part of that being a feminist means looking at this power imbalance that exists in society you know and to question how you know institutions and policies and structures in society kind of almost always uphold uh, the power right? Yeah. Those who are in power. And um, so where do we align ourselves with? So I think that that's uh, what uh, feminism means to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just at the very baseline, just recognising that there is the power imbalance, because, you know, so many people just say, oh, you know, if these feminists just making a lot of noise about nothing that's there, so wrong. Uh, and so, you know, just, I guess, you know, even identifying as feminist, even today, I don't know, I find when I say it, Siva, people still give me the look, you know, I haven't, <laughs> it's not, I'm not considered cool in my circles, unfortunately. So... Still, still work for me to do. You should change your circle. Yeah, I know, right? Okay, but this is the family side. Never mind. Let's not go there. <laughs> but now let's talk about um, Arrow and the work that you do, right? So, uh, talk to me a little bit about what uh, raised your research interest in in sexual and reproductive health and rights in particular. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So I think that, you know, also I wanted to, you know, maybe link in with the earlier question. You know, so for me. Um, Early on in life, I had decided that, you know, I wanted to do my activism not as a 
side, uh, you know, enterprise, right? I mean, like turn up for a job nine to five and then like kind of, you know, go for meetings and do the mobilization or the education type of work that, you know, activism implies. But I wanted to do it um, within, you know, uh, um, a formal setting, you know, that is within the NGO setting, right? So to work in an NGO. Um, And uh, part of that is like uh, also to say like, you know, going back again right so I knew that my strengths were in writing my strengths were in like putting together books and publications you know and my strength is also in communications right so mostly how I expressed uh, my feminism is mainly through the work I do and bringing the strengths that I already have right so I ensure the subject matters that I was wanting to write about whether it was contraception girls rights or abortion rights are from the feminist lens and perspective and uphold gender equality and then you know I also try to like make sure that I'm giving my year to our partners who are working on the ground and who are on the front lines in different contexts and countries. And, you know, their realities are somehow reflected in what I'm writing about as well, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, that the nuance, uh, nuances from the ground are there. So when I came to Arrow, I came as a consultant, right? And my superpower then was to take a this kind of uh, reports lying in shelves and like, you know, in folders in like this one, you know, the ones that nobody wants to look at, right? Because it has passed the hand from one officer to another officer. And then somewhere inside the project proposal, there is this, oh, must deliver product, right? And that product was a publication, right? Yep, yep. But that was my superpower. So taking all of this uh, reports and making some beautiful publications out of them. And then when I was working on this, I was like reading about women, you know, who had to have the permission of their spouse to go to a clinic, right? Or to take a method of contraception that they had their, um, uh, they had to have spousal consent for, or that, you know, survivors of rape or incest who found it difficult to access safe abortion services, right? And so it was an eye opener because, you know, there was sitting there in 2006, 2007, and I thought that reproductive rights was a done deal from the 70s or, you know, that was anyway how it was conveyed to me. Right. Hmm. So it sparked in me like this outrage that, oh, my gosh, you know, we are still not, you know, it's in the 2000s. And now we're in 2020, you know, we're still not able to make decisions about our bodies by ourselves. Right. Yeah. And um, hence, I stayed, you know, so I think that um, uh, that's how, you know, this uh, research interest kind of was sparked. Okay. And there's one thing I wanted to ask you, you know, in line with that, right, were there things about the work that you do through Arrow that you wish more people understood? There's some common misconceptions that exist. I don't know, maybe that, oh, you're promoting... Uh, you're promoting uh, promiscuity or things like that, you know, when you talk about a woman's uh, sexual and reproductive health rights. No, I think uh, definitely, I have to say, you know, um, you kind of like hit the iron, you know, well, it's hot, Mm. you know, Uh, because I feel like one of the misconceptions, and you talked about promiscuity, right, it was about one, you know, that uh, young people should be trusted, you know, Um, and I feel like ever so often when we talk about comprehensive sexuality education, you know, uh, many uh, adults will like say, oh, well, you know, if you teach young people to have sex, then they'll go out and have sex. But actually the converse is true because if you give people information, then they realize that these are, you know, decisions that they have to exercise with care and responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. Keeping the information away from them does not enable them to make better decisions, 
you know so i think that trusting young people is one and then as also as part of that that you know women and girls can be trusted you know as equal human beings right in fact so many of the issues in our society right now are based and decided on the mistrust of women being able to make decisions right because if you look at the citizenship rights case i mean this is about how women cannot be trusted once they marry a foreigner yeah Right. And uh, or if you look at uh, the Bin Abdullah case, right, I mean, that even when men say this child is mine, it is basically the state that says, no, can this woman who has had premarital sex be trusted? Right. right. So um, I think that these uh, are ways in which we need to shift our mindset and actually trust, you know, women and girls on the Opposite, right, when we see everywhere in life around us, you know, from whether it's putting food on the table, balancing the household budget, um, getting the children ready for school or mentoring the kids through school or building family relationships or holding family peace. You know, we trust women to do all of these other things, except in the matters of sexuality and reproduction. So I think that one, we need to learn this truth that you know women and girls can be trusted you know so i think that that's another um misconception you know that is out there okay all right and um you know as far as you're concerned i mean you've been you've been doing this work for for a long time now um where do you think malaysia stands in terms of women's rights i mean you know not just uh, sexual and reproductive health uh, and rights but you know just just women's rights in general you mentioned two major cases there that you know unbelievable right that we're still fighting for that uh, in this day and age yeah, exactly. And I think that not only for me and women's rights activists in Malaysia also, but I think many people also have the sentiment that, you know, there used to be a time that Malaysia was ahead of many countries when it came to women's rights. I mean, we were one of the first to pass a Domestic Violence Act ahead of many other of our neighboring countries, right? Yeah. And we set up the one-stop crisis centers in a very, you know, across all uh, hospitals, you know, and then even in the 70s, we you know, we kind of lowered maternal mortality and ensured, you know, girls access to education. But, you know, in the last uh, couple of decades, we seem to have stagnated, right? And we're not able to make progress on the newer issues, right? Look at uh, political participation of women, you know, where countries like Nepal and Rwanda have overtaken us. Or even small issues like minimum age of marriage, which should be just like uh, something that, you know, is not even up for negotiation, right? That we can all say that, hey, girls should only get married from the age of 17 and 18. And let's do that to make it possible that girls enjoy their childhood uh, and are able to be educated at least till they complete their secondary school and have some form of empowerment in their hands before, you know, they make uh, their, their married off, you know. So I think that these are uh, some of these issues that continue to bog us down. I mean, I can't even fathom why, because on some of these, definitely, I feel like even public opinion is with us on this matters. Yeah. And this, you know, just talking about that as well, you know, recently we were reading about how, you know, some hospitals deny single women uh, contraception and things like that. And you're, and you're like, how is that still happening today? How can you, and, and, and it's against the law, you have no right to do that. You know, you are imposing your moral sort of values on them. Uh, and yeah, those are just, yeah, some of the challenges that still remain, I suppose, right? 
Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, uh, you know, it goes back to that trusting women on the matters of sexuality and reproduction, right? Mm -hmm. And these are not, I mean, let's just not say that it's special to us, you know? Sure, yes, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the, um, I remember when I was doing this research, and I guess that's one of the advantages of working in a regional organization is that you get to see these patterns and trends across uh, different countries, right? So one of the things I remember that there is a, there's a particular data set that is called the demographic health surveys, which is like this very huge block of reports that some countries buy, you know. So I remember that uh, in Cambodia, I was reading and I was reading the report and it was like it said about how usage of contraception is about uh, indicates mistrust, right? So if a wife were to ask a husband to wear a condom, it meant that she was suspecting that he was not being faithful, right? Mm -hmm. Or a woman taking contraception also implied that she was not being faithful to uh, her husband, right? So this is this is what the mindset is all about, you know, so that promiscuity that you talked about, that people think that, oh, women take contraception because they want to be promiscuous. Right. Uh, And it depends. What do you mean by promiscuous, actually? Right. Yeah. So if you uh, only had a partner and if you even if you were married, you can take contraception because oh, it's within the framework of marriage. But if you are having a, a relationship with someone and of which, uh, you know, uh, sex is part of the deal, then you have every right to protect yourself. Right. Regardless of whether you're married or not married. You know, so I feel like, you know, married women have a right to use uh, and ask for the use of condoms within their marriage. You know, just like unmarried women have a right to say, well, you know, I'm not planning on getting pregnant for the next five years. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, I could have an uh, an IUD if I wanted to. Right. Yeah. I don't have to only resort to um, things like oral contraceptive pills where, you know, I can just get it from the pharmacy. So I think um, if we can actually trust women to make these decisions for themselves, for ourselves, then I think that we would have a very different uh, uh, view, you know, and yeah. how do we change the mindset? So our whole thing is like, how do we change the mindset in order to make that happen? Yeah. Would you say that's one of the biggest challenges that still remains, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, championing women's rights, uh, sexual and reproductive health rights here in Malaysia? No, definitely. And not only in Malaysia, but across the world, Mm, right? mm. Because uh, women's bodies and control of women's bodies are very critical, you know, to the state. When you look at some of those countries like, you know, India and China, who had very, very coercive population control policies, what they did do was say, you must have family planning or you must uh, have access to safe abortion. So you can only have one or two children, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you have the more uh, pro-natalist countries where they say you must have as many children as possible because, you know, whether you had children or you didn't have children, your body was, uh, how do I say, a tool of the state in order to kind of uh, fulfill its own population targets in one way or another. But um, what feminist activists did around SRHR, and, you know, this is like kind of uh, uh, captured within the landmark um, document, which is the International Conference on Population Development in Cairo in 1994, is to put women and, you know, couples at the heart of that so that women are able to make these decisions for themselves, right? So I can decide how many children I want to have. And, you know, if the state wants me to have five, I can I have a right to decide to have fewer than that. Or if the state wanted me to have a one child, then I have the right to 
have more than one child, you know? So mm-hmm. I think that that's where, uh, where sexual and reproductive health and rights becomes contentious because what we do is about, um, how do I say, centering women's agency and women's autonomy, you know, uh, in the face of state policies. Mm-hmm. And then on that note on policies and, and state sort of uh, initiatives, right, what would you say are some good examples uh, that can actually help improve, uh, you know, some of those issues that we have, that you were mentioning earlier or, or, you know, just human rights issues, I guess, in particular? No, I think that, you know, the intention is always there. And I do believe that policymakers really understand why we need some of these uh you know, policies in place, you know, like whether it is the um, uh, citizenship issue or whether it is about the issue of uh, having a minimum age of marriage, right? Mm. I think it's all about political will, you know? And I think that unless um, politicians are able to like kind of step up and say, well, this is what needs to be done and and do it, you know, there is no way that, that that's going to actually kind of um, happen. You know, so I feel like uh, the Sexual Harassment Act, you know, was a great uh, move that the parliament made and the women's ministry made. However, you know, there could be greater initiatives uh, being taken up, right, in order by the public sector and by other stakeholders to actually provide teeth to some of these policy uh, changes that are being introduced. So I feel like if we really wanted to make an improvement in human rights, then it's everybody's rights which are at stake, right? So because the human rights issues, it's easy for us to say, well, that's only applicable to, you know, this particular group or that particular group. But the the thing about human rights is once we say, okay, there are caveats, there are groups that cannot benefit from these rights, then we're actually opening up the door to say no one can benefit from these rights. You know, it's like a sliding slope that we are on, you mm-hmm. know. So I feel like uh, we have to up- uphold human rights in so many different ways. And I think that if you talk about how we have lived through the pandemic of the last two years or three years, right, and we're still living through the pandemic, there are many, many issues where, you know, economic rights and social rights, you know, which are also part of the human rights framework, um, need to be upheld. And so, you know, we can understand how marginalized communities and poor communities are actually going to benefit from the human rights frameworks. Okay. All right. And I, I always ask this uh, of my guests, um, you know, if you were to have the years of the world leaders, right? I mean, okay, our national world leaders, you know, what is the message that you would most want to tell them? We know we've made a lot of progress, but you know, what more needs to be done as far as you're concerned? I think I would tell them like invest in gender equality, one, believe uh, in your women citizens and give them the equal rights of citizenship that they are due and do everything in line with that, you know. So I think that that's the one message I would like to tell any leader. Simple and sweet. I love it, Siva. Um, let's just go one more quick break, Siva. We just need to go for one more quick break. When we come back, I just want to uh, talk to you about, you know, your your career as a feminist as well. You know, have you faced any harassment or, uh, you know, I guess, you know, some reflections of your work? I'm speaking today to Sivanandi Tanendran. She is a feminist. She's a writer, activist. The, she is the executive director of the Asian Pacific Resource and Research Centre for Women or Aero. It's another episode of Good Things. Siva is our good person for today. We'll have more after this one more quick break. Keep it right here on Good Things on The Bigger Picture. BFM 89.9 
Welcome back. This is Good Things on the Bigger Picture, the show where we speak to good people doing good things. Joining me today is Sivanandi Thanendaran. She is the Executive Director of the Asian Pacific Resource and Research Centre for Women, or Arrow, which is a regional non-profit which champions sexual and reproductive health rights. Uh, she is also a feminist and a writer, uh, and she is basically a good person. She's just been doing wonderful work all this while. She is one of my uh, one of my heroes. I, I just wanted you to know that, and I always admire the, uh, you know everything that you've done and accomplished so far. And you know the work hasn't ended yet, of course, Sivanandi. Um, I just wanted to ask you, this is related to something I asked you earlier. So, you know, we, we both identify as feminists, right? And um, I, I don't know if you remember, I used to do one segment called Feminist Fridays back in the day, right? Um, and after every episode, I would always have this fear because I would always get negative feedback from male listeners without fail, uh, every, almost every episode that we did, you know. And um, I, I just wanted to know, you know, did you face any such, uh, you know, similar situations? You know, have you ever faced harassment or, yeah, things like that? Yeah, you know, firstly, um, Juliet, let me just tell you that that's very sweet of you to say that I'm one of your sheroes, okay? Sheroes, yes. Also one of my sheroes too, because you <laughs> try to do exactly this, right? Because uh, when we have that space, how do we utilize that space? And we don't have to hold all the power in the world, but, you know, that small forms of power that are given to us, how do we exercise that power, right? Yeah. So, um, no, definitely, I think that, you know, when you talked about um, backlash, and I think that um, one of the things about maybe being a little bit older is that um, we didn't live in this um, how do I say, constant uh, social media type of environment, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, harassment and backlash could be 24-7, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so that was like, I guess, one of the privileges of being born at a time where, you know, of snail mail and, you know, <laughs> media was like once every 24-hour news cycle, right? <laughs> you know, uh, and broadsheet, of course, you know, so that was what we had. But I think that what you are talking about is, you know, a particularly current kind of scenario. And, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about the backlash that the field itself is experiencing exactly like what you said. I mean, like once something as that within like minutes, you will have feedback given to you all the time. Right. Yeah. Uh, and um, and I think that uh, in comparison with earlier years, you know, what we see is that there is definitely a movement, you know, which is called the anti new anti feminism or anti gender. Right. Uh, which is being experienced. And this is a very um, something that it is far more organized and employs similar strategies and tactics, like exactly like what you said, you know, find a person, keep attacking them. And then what happens is where the online violence can spill very quickly from the virtual world to the real world, right? Yeah. And um, through these means of things like doxing, and then, you know, there's just this uh, whole few of uh, things that are kind of targeted at younger activists, you know, so I think that definitely this is something that, you know, we really need to be very um, alert about and not only as just feminists working in the space and how we utilize and engage with social media, but also for policymakers to kind of look at what are the types of violence that are now occurring, which are beyond that domain of violence that as we have understood it in the past, you know, or experienced it in the past. And um, there's definitely need for regulation, uh, self-regulation of communities, but also regulation from the government and the law enforcement side. Mm -hmm. Okay. And does it get any easier, Siva, you know, the work that you do in that sense, you know, uh, do you feel like, 
yeah, do you feel like you're constantly, you know, facing impossible odds or, yeah, or do you think it's just gotten a bit better with time? I think uh, this is not a, uh, I mean, it's not a field. I mean, being a feminist is not going to be an easy thing, but I think, you know, the fact that we identify as that, we know that it's not an easy thing, right? Because being a feminist means like, you know, there's also the world out there, but then there's also the world within feminists holding us up to like some sort of uh, impossible standards, which we are not also not able to fulfill, right? So it's like getting it from both ends, I think, (laughs) that uh, you face. But uh, I think that's the... uh, joy of it so there's like uh you know the ups of doing things well and then there's the lows of like thinking you know really what am i doing and is it useful right mm-hmm. um so i don't think it gets easier but all we know is you know how um the anti gender rights movement has risen is you know clearly with the fact that they think that something is happening in society which feminists are enacting and with that feminists are actually making progress Right. Because why would you organize yourself against a movement that is a failure? You know, you wouldn't have to. So I think that uh, to look at that, um, the new mobilization as uh, part of the success, you know, that we have to do. Um, And I think that what I have found heartening is that some of the newer strategies being employed, like telling stories or, you know, giving voice and platform to many others who to speak on the same issues is something that um, is actually working well, because we're actually talking about how this agenda is owned, right, by mm. so many young women, so many girls and so many women. And I think that sometimes in that, you know, me keeping silent, is a strength, you know, and just going and amplifying someone else's voice and enabling them to speak up and supporting their story is sometimes more powerful than me being able to do it by myself, you know. So I think that that's how, you know, things have uh, changed. Okay. And, you know, just looking back at uh, your work, reflecting on, you know, everything that you've done, is there something that, you know, you're most proud of or something that you count as, you know, one of your greatest successes? I think um, part of the fact is that because I, I get to work for an organization like Arrow, which gives me like a lot of flexibility, right? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of flexibility in terms of like, you know, being able to go to new issues. And I think like being able to build, you know, the interlinkages between SRHR and climate change. And I know that you've read all our materials yes. on, right? <laughs> yes. You know, of poverty and food security. I mean, these were, you know, our early attempts at arrow uh, in order to like kind of say look at this agenda if we can actually take a grip and give women rights over their bodies and women and girls rights over their bodies then it goes a long way in improving their um, uh, outcomes in so many different fields and so many different circumstances right Mm -hmm. so I think that uh, being able to put the SRHR agenda across so many of these development issues I would definitely think that you know is something that you know I'm very proud of because I think that um, it was something useful that we have done for the agenda and we have actually you know kind of um, been you know taught or shared with our allies like yourself and other organizations to say, look, you can do this too, because not every policymaker wants to talk to you about women and girls, right? Mm. But they may want to talk to you about poverty. They may want to talk to you about climate change. They may want to talk to you about food security. And then we have this opportunity of saying, 
yes, that's great. And this, I agree with you on this, 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 this. And this is what it looks like for women and girls. And this is what more is needed for women and girls, you know? So I think uh, that's uh, one of the successes I'm very happy with. You were one. Of, you were the first person to to make me realize those linkages between you know women's rights and and the climate change and how they are more impacted. It was that, that paper. It was that conversation with you. It just opened my eyes and uh, you know so much more recognition right about how women are more adversely impacted and especially you know women who are uh, in in you know facing poverty as well. So it, again, thank you. You know, there's been so many eye opening moments uh, after after chatting with you, Sifa. Uh, <laughs> I I just want to I just want to wrap up uh, by just asking you a, a couple of things. Actually, so you remember earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that when you were teaching, you would bring in books uh, and and you know feminist theories. I mean, any any recommendations for anyone listening, you know, on some books or authors that had a major impact on your perception of justice and feminism, you know, that you'd like to recommend we read? Oh my gosh, you know, I, there are so many. I mean, like, I mean, I still like go back to books like from Margaret Atwood. You know, I am currently reading uh, Mariana Mazzucato, who is like, you know, um, I think uh, one of the things that I've been asked to do in the last couple of years is to look at, you know, the issue of justice, you know, reproductive justice. What does it look like for different communities? And hence, I've been doing like a lot of work on that. So I would recommend you read Mariana Mazzucato. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I mean, this is my latest read. Okay. So um, I feel like, um, you know, um, if you can get, your hands on copies of old editions of what is called the Reproductive Health Matters Journal. Um, these were a set of journals where, you know, you had like really amazing seminal thinkers putting some of those linkages between sexual and reproductive uh, health and rights uh, alongside feminist perspectives and feminist lens, right? Mm -hmm. And you like really, you know, learn a lot from those uh, journals, even though, you know, some of them are maybe older, you know, as I have done. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, so that's in short. Okay. Yeah, sorry, I put you in a spot there. Yeah, that's something I just thought when you were, you know, mentioning it. Um, but Siva, thank you so much, you know, for sharing uh, everything that you have uh, with me today. Uh, any final message that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I mean, final message sounds like such a... <laughs> Like such as, uh, firstly, actually, yeah. Jukin, I was saying like, you know, you're saying talk about uh, good people doing good things, you know. Mm -hmm. So, but uh, some of the things that, um, you know, women and feminists have been most successful is by doing the not good things, you know, the things that rebel against society, you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, and I think reframing that as good things include that means that which uh, rebels against society is uh, you know, great. And uh, I think um, one thing, uh, I guess, you know, having this conversation with you that I learned is that, you know, the things that uh, we cannot compromise on, you know, and uh, doing work that is valuable is a powerful reminder to us on a daily basis that our lives matter. And I think that every person who is doing work, you have to consider and say like, no, do you think that this work that I'm doing is, is something that's valuable to me in my life? In that, you have to follow your passion, you know, so to speak, uh, to find something that you're passionate about, you're good at, and is rewarding and fulfilling to yourself. Don't stop in the pursuit of that because at the end of it, we only have one life, you know, which we have to live. Okay. 
Well, thank you so much Siva, um, for joining me today. Uh, I've been speaking to Sivanandit Nandaran. She is the Executive Director of the Asian Pacific Resource and Research Centre for Women, or Arrow. She's also a feminist, a writer and an activist. If you'd like to find out more about the work that Arrow does, you can head to their website. That's arrow.org.my. Uh, you guys, of course, are on all uh, the social media uh, channels as well. And if you miss um, any, any, yeah, any, any particular ones that you want us to follow or yeah, just any of the socials, yeah. right? So there's, uh, we are Instagram, we are on as a, uh, at Arrow Women and we are on Twitter as at Arrow Women as well as on Facebook as well and you know and in a number of this we also have we live stream some of our events okay. so if you're happy to join yes okay alright but I guess you know our starting point would just be the website so that's uh, arrow.org.my thank you so much for joining me today uh, Siva and if you miss any part of our conversation you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my or you can find it on the BFM app this has been Good Things on the Bigger Picture BFM 89.9 You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.